Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Kurt Schlichting talks about the Waterfront Museum in Red Hook, Brooklyn. This small barge, listed on the National Registry of Historic Places, is the last wooden vessel still floating in New York's harbor and serves as the organization's physical front. But the Golden Museum is far larger to educate the public about the city's outstanding maritime history and its contemporary importance. Schlichting, a sociologist at Fairfield University, uses the museum to similarly explore this much larger subject, drawing on his recent book, Waterfront Manhattan, the first to exclusively focus on the ways New York's globally unique harbor and shoreline decisively shaped the fate of the city across its 400 years. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. The history of New York is tied to the use of its waterfront. That's why Henry Hudson entered the harbor in 1609. It's why the Dutch settled the tip of Manhattan in 1624. It's the waterfront that's the valuable physical asset of the city of New York. And for 300 years, the use of the waterfront created the vibrant city of New York that we see today. And we sometimes lose track of that, that it was the waterfront which was the original source the physical source for the city of New York to prosper. So the book I've recently completed, Waterfront Manhattan, is an attempt to refocus us on the waterfront, which is what the Waterfront Museum is all about, just as the Transit Museum wants us to think about how people moved about on Manhattan Island. What I decided to do was to look at the history of New York famously coined the island at the center of the world, through the lens of the use of the waterfront. I had a couple of key questions. First, what explains New York's rise in the Atlantic world to a position of dominance? I'll explain how by the 1830s, New York was the second busiest port in the world. And is geography history? We'll talk about the physical space of the harbor itself. And then how did a city, which begins as a colonial city, build the needed maritime infrastructure along the shore? How was that to be constructed? And then the waterfront needed a large labor force, a labor force of day workers. How was that waterfront socially constructed? And then for over 300 plus years, there's been a battle over control of the waterfront. Is the waterfront public space or private space? And then as New York rises to maritime prominence, the waterfront becomes a place not just of commerce, but a place of crime and corruption and battle for reform. It's a world of eventually mobsters and gangsters. And then after World War II, technological revolution begins, the container, And that leads to literally the death of the Manhattan waterfront and the Brooklyn waterfront, for that matter. And it coincides with the near death of New York in the 1970s. The city didn't die, obviously, and there's been this remarkable rebirth, some of that driven by the reimagining of the use of the Manhattan waterfront. It's no longer a place of longshoremen and shipping. 
it's now a place of recreation and celebrating the, the beauty of the waters that surround Manhattan Island, which are now pristine almost compared to what they were 100 years ago. Well, where we begin then is the rise of New York in what's called the Atlantic world, the world that united Europe with the colonial world of North America. And that North Atlantic area, that 3,000 miles that separate the old world from the new world, becomes the most important sea passageway in the world. And on the one hand, you have in Europe, you have Amsterdam, London, Liverpool, and La Havre. And then you have the coastal colonial cities in America, Boston, Newport, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Charleston. New York's rise to prominence was not preordained. All of those seaports competed to be the major seaport. But turn for a moment to this idea of is geography history. New York is one of the deepest and protected harbors in the world. It's a place where hundreds of ships could anchor safely. The ships would approach Sandy Hook in New Jersey. They'd enter into the Lower Bay, Raritan Bay. Then they'd sail north through the Narrows, and they'd be into the Upper Bay. The Upper Bay is what we see when we're standing at the Battery, and we look to the south and we see Staten Island. And that Upper Bay is protected from almost all of the violent storms that rage out in the Atlantic Ocean. Once a ship was through the Narrows, it was relatively protected from the ravages of the sea. It was a harbor of refuge for hundreds of ships. That might seem ironic given Hurricane Sandy, but we'll return to that later. The physical geography of the harbor also includes the fact that along the East River, and that's the first part of Manhattan's shoreline that's developed, it's deep water at low tide. So looking at a British naval map from 1776, and right up along the East River shore, you can see the number four, and that refers to the number of fathoms at low water. Fathom is six feet, so that the low tide, in effect, along the East River was a couple of hundred yards offshore, it was 24 feet, which is an enormous advantage. And a second part of the geography of New York, the Hudson River proceeds almost 150 miles north to Albany, opening a waterway passage to central New York. And then across central New York, you start with the Mohawk River, and then you move through the Finger Lakes, and that's really a gap, a gap in the Appalachian Mountains between Albany and what is now the city of Buffalo. Now, the Appalachian Mountains stretch from northern Maine to northern Alabama, and while they may not seem momentous as the Rockies, they represented a physical barrier between the eastern seaboard of North America and the Midwest. And in only one place was there a gap. And that gap is between Albany and Buffalo. And it's called the water level route. And that eventually becomes a location of the Erie Canal. And then later when the railroads arrive and the New York Central is created, it follows the Erie Canal from Albany to Buffalo through the water level route. That then connects New York with the Great Lakes it connects New York with Chicago. 
And through the Erie Canal comes the new bounty of the American Midwest. And this is an advantage Boston didn't enjoy, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. We need then to think about the beginnings of the city of New York. Henry Hudson arrives in 1609, sailing for the Dutch East India Company. And then in 1624, the Dutch build a settlement, New Amsterdam, at the lower tip of Manhattan Island. Now, that purpose of New Amsterdam, the real purpose is to provide a port where the Dutch merchants can ship the, the fur and deerskins that the Indians in upstate New York procured and the Dutch found incredibly valuable. The Dutch and the British begin to literally fight, in some cases, to battle for control of New York City and its harbor. Fifty years later, in 1674, the British gained control, and they renamed New Amsterdam New York after the king's brother. And then in 1686, the people living in the city of New York petitioned the English crown for a new charter. And in 1686, the Dongan Charter established New York City as a separate political entity within the colony of New York, the separate municipality in effect with a mayor and alderman who ran the city, appointed individuals, not elected, but the city was independent. In 1730, New Charter gave the city the right to control the underwater land called water lots for 400 feet out from the shoreline of Manhattan. And that's going to prove very important the story of the Manhattan waterfront. The waterfront had to be developed for a maritime world. When the ships came across the Atlantic, they needed a wharf or a pier to tie up to. And how was that infrastructure going to be created? The colonial government was a complicated mix of public and private power, but there was no expectation that the city of New York, the corporation, would build the waterfront infrastructure. So what did they do? Private citizens could petition the Common Council for a right, a grant, of the underwater land, typically offshore from land they owned along the shore. These were wealthy people, the wealthy merchants of colonial New York. And in turn, the Common Council would grant them a water lot, the underwater land 400 feet offshore from the land that they already owned. In turn, they were required to build a new waterfront street Water Street, or eventually South Street, or West Street, they would build that new street, and then they'd fill in the land between the new street and the shoreline. And that created made land, it was referred to. And it extended the shorefront of the city out into the first East River and then eventually the Hudson River. And that made land was the private property of the individual who was granted the water lot. The grantee could charge a wharfage fee for the ships that came and tied up to the new wharf that the street created. That was their property, and there was minimum oversight from the city of New York. Now, what this led to was a maritime infrastructure that was privately constructed, privately maintained, and privately operated. To give you an example, if we go to the East River and think of the distance between Wall Street and Maiden Lane, it's less than a mile. 
The original shorefront was on Pearl Street. It extended it out to first Water Street, then the mainland was created. And then additional grants were made to extend the waterfront from Water to Front Street. And finally, to extend Front Street to South Street. And South Street is the current shoreline. Between 1686 and 1850, there were 149 water lot grants, and that created 25 acres of made land, new land. And this continued. Where Stuyvesant Town is today, between 14th Street and 23rd Street, that was originally Stuyvesant Cove. And the water of the East River went all the way up to First Avenue. In the 1820s and 30s, water lot grants were made basically of all of Stuyvesant Cove. And the same was true in the Chelsea neighborhood on the Hudson River. The Clement Moore family, the famous Clement Moore who wrote The Night Before Christmas, his father was the Episcopal Bishop of Manhattan. They had a large estate uh, around uh, 20th Street, and they owned the shoreline. And Clement Moore and his son Benjamin Moore were granted a series of grants that extended the shorefront of the Hudson River uh, out from 9th Street to 13th Street. It was a giant part of Chelsea. It was a water lot. And in turn, the Moors built wharfs and piers and filled in the land. And some have asked, well, where did the fill come from? Well, the fill came from a number of sources. One was the building boom in Manhattan. Imagine building a, a tenement. Typical city lot was 25 feet wide and 100 feet deep. And perhaps the tenement was going to be 25 feet by 70 feet. Think about digging the cellar. You can multiply the square footage and you can get the cubic yards, do the math. It creates a lot of fill that has to be dug and carted away in horse-drawn carts, and the ideal place was to dump it in these new water lots. Garbage was dumped in the water lots. Ships were abandoned at a wharf and at a pier, and they were left there because now the street was going to be at the end of the pier, the new extension, and the ship was just buried. And a number of these have been excavated, and uh, archaeologists have covered the ruins of these ships, on both the East and, and Hudson Rivers. Finally, let me suggest one other way of thinking about a water lot. In the 1960s, for a very complicated set of reasons, the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, decided to build the World Trade Center. The location of the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan was actually on made land, but to dig the foundation for the two twin towers created an enormous amount of fill. It could have been loaded onto barges and towed out into the Atlantic Ocean. But instead, by that time, the piers that had stretched from Battery Park to Chamber Street were abandoned. They filled that in and created a giant 90-acre water lot, and that's where Battery Park City sits today. So if we think about this then, over 250 years of water lot grants expanded the island of Manhattan out into the East and Hudson Rivers. And the best estimate is that it created 2,286 acres of made land. The shoreline that Henry Hudson saw in 1609 has disappeared. And the island of Manhattan is much larger than it was. Well, once the infrastructure was in place, what drove the maritime ascendancy of the city of New York? 
Part of it were a group of Quaker merchants who were very willing to take the risks of creating a shipping empire. A note about how shipping worked. If you were uh, someone who wanted to ship goods to Europe or travel to Europe, you would come to New York or you would live in New York, and a ship would announce that it was going to sail on October 30th to London. Well, that ship might leave on October 30th, or it might not. It depended upon if the hold was filled with cargo or if all the passenger berths were filled. There was no set schedule. In 1817, a group of Quaker merchants, led by Jeremiah Thompson, decided to do something very radical. They formed what they called the Black Ball Line, and they had four ships. And they placed an advertisement in a New York newspaper that appeared on October 27, 1817, and it said across the top, a line of American packets between New York and Liverpool. What they promised was that one of their vessels would sail between New York and Liverpool, and Liverpool and New York, quote, on a certain day in every month throughout the year. And this was revolutionary. The Black Ball Line was an, an immediate success. It was followed by the Red Star Line, another packet line and also a packet line to London and a packet line to the heart. By the way, packets referred to letters being sent overseas. The letters would be bound together and tied, and that was called a packet. By the 1820s, a packet ship left New York every week, and this really began to cement the ascendancy of the city of New York. By the way, the men who sailed on these ships, this was an incredibly difficult and dangerous way to make a living. And the sailors were young men who lived in the waterfront neighborhoods. They only were paid when they were aboard the ships. They lived a couple of blocks away from the East River. There were grog shops and brothels, crime and corruption and danger. And they often died young. They would fall overboard in a gale in the North Atlantic in February, and the ship simply couldn't stop. But New York's waterway empire was not just the packet ships to Europe. Packet lines also were started to serve the southern cotton ports, Charleston, Savannah, New Orleans. The Erie Canal opens in 1825, and now New York is linked through a waterway that stretches from the harbor up the Hudson River through the canal across the Great Lakes, and then down to Chicago. A second canal was built by the state of New York that linked the Hudson River with Lake Champlain. And through Lake Champlain, you could reach the Richelieu Canal up in Canada and then be connected with the St. Lawrence River at uh, Montreal. And then there was waterways through the Long Island Sound that provided transportation for people moving between New York and New England. There were sound ferries that did that. You could take a ferry from Manhattan down through the Narrows, through Raritan Bay to New Brunswick, where there was a canal to the Delaware River, and that connected with Philadelphia. So New York, in a period of time, built a waterway empire, and no other coastal city did that. By 1850, the port was the second busiest in the world. And the city's waterfront, Manhattan's waterfront, from the Battery up to Collier's Hook on the East River, around Collier's Hook, and all the way up to Stuyvesant Cove, was filled with piers and wharves. And the same was true on the Hudson River, 
all the way from the battery up to where, in effect, Riverside Park is today. 5,000 canal boats came to New York down the Erie Canal every year, many of which, by the way, would winter over in the Red Hook Basin because both the Hudson River and the Erie Canal would freeze in the wintertime. So the waterfront was a place apart, and the public was excluded. This was a maritime world. Returning for a moment to that route between New York and Liverpool, the reason it was important is that for the entire 19th century and well into the 20th, the most important product that the American economy produced was cotton. Everything else paled by comparison. And the route across the North Atlantic to Liverpool linked America to the Industrial Revolution in Britain. And the Industrial Revolution originally was mechanizing the production of textiles, in particular cotton. And it created an insatiable demand for American cotton across the 3,000 miles of the North Atlantic to Liverpool, most important trade route in the world. New York dominated that. Some of the cotton was transported first from the southern packet ships to New York Harbor, where it was loaded on the packet ships sailing to Liverpool. But even if the ships went directly from New Orleans to Liverpool, which many did, that ship might have been owned by the New York merchants. And the New York shipping companies dominated. The ships were insured by New York maritime insurance companies. And the entire cotton world was often financed by the New York merchant banks, who had become wealthy with the trade back and forth across the Atlantic which created a second era of the development of the American South, the empire of cotton, and the states of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. New land was open for cotton plantations financed by the New York merchant banks. Slaves in the original southern states were sold to these new cotton plantations. Uh, Walter Johnson calls this a second middle passage give you an example. In 1820, in the slave states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama, the census counted 100,000 slaves. Forty years later, there were 680,000, and in 1860, before the Civil War, there were three million counted in the census. This, then, is tied to New York. In fact, a historian in the 1830s, Robert Albion, wrote a book about the rise of the port of New York, and one chapter is enslaving the cotton ports, which drove the southern elites to madness, that New York was gathering the profits of their cotton plantations. And the railroads come to the city, the New York Central Railroad, and in all of the other major railroads, they had to be able to serve the port of New York, so they built facilities in Jersey City and Hoboken and Weehawken, where their trains would come. And then the freight had to be carried across the Hudson. And then freight from Europe or manufactured products from New York's booming manufacturing economy had to be floated across the Hudson River and loaded onto the trains of the Pennsylvania Railroad or the Baltimore and Ohio or the Erie Lackawanna, and that added another layer of complexity to the harbor and the use of the shoreline. So there was a crisis, and the crisis arose as the harbor became more and more crowded and the Manhattan waterfront became more and more crowded. It was also a place of crime and corruption. 
Tammany Hall, the corrupt democratic political machine, shook down the shipping merchants. There were gangs on the waterfront. So finally, after the Civil War, the state of New York and the city of New York created a new city agency called the Department of Docks. And the charge of the Department of Docks was to take control of the waterfront, rebuild or reconstruct the maritime infrastructure, and bring some order to the chaos. So what the Department of Docks set out to do was to buy back the waterfront, which they did, and they built this new waterfront for 17.8 miles. They purchased that back from the private owners who had the original water lots. And to finance that, now the Department of Docks controlled the docks so that wharfage fees and fees to more were paid to the Department of Docks and no, no longer to the private owners. And it worked. The port became much more well-organized and the volume of shipping increased dramatically. But then there's going to be two revolutions. And the first is the revolution of steam power and iron power. Now, steam power had been in New York Harbor since 1807 when John Stevens built a steam-powered ferry boat to go up the Hudson River to Albany. And steam tugs were available to tow ships, the sailing ships, up through the Narrows, for example, or to tow ships off of the piers that were ready to set sail. But steam power hadn't been efficiently applied to ships because, first of all, the, the steam engines were very inefficient. They burned tons and tons of coal, and there wasn't enough space or it wasn't profitable enough to equip a ship with steam power. However, Samuel Cunard, an English shipping magnet, in 1840 built a steam-powered ship called the Britannia, which was both steam and sail-powered. Others followed. And that then leads to an ascendancy, not just of steel, but of iron. Ships made of both iron and steel and much more efficient steam engines. And that's going to drive the sailing ships from the North Atlantic and from New York Harbor. So, for example, Cunard built a ship called the Campania in 1893, which was 600 feet long. Then the Mauritania follows. It's 800 feet long. And then in 1911, Cunard begins to build the Titanic, and that's going to be 900 feet long. And the ships that followed were going to be 1,000 feet long. And there was no space. The piers on both the Hudson and East River weren't long enough out into the river to accommodate these ships. So the Department of Docks set out to solve that problem. They couldn't build any farther out into the river. The Army Corps of Engineers controlled the river usage by that period of time, and they wouldn't allow the docks to be extended. So what did the Department of Docks do? They bought back the made land. They started first in Greenwich Village, and they excavated the shoreline of Manhattan back to where it had originally been. And that created then a new West Street, which was Father Inland. And now you could be, build piers in Greenwich Village from Gonsforth down to uh, Bank Street. And these piers were 700 feet long. And in turn then, they um, leased those piers for a period of time to the White Star Line, to the Cunard Line, and the Leland Line for almost $100,000 a year. 
This project cost about $6 million in $1890, but it was profitable because the revenue in the first year was almost $400,000. In fact, the Department of Docs was profitable for its first 25 years of existence. It's kind of unheard of today where we would think no public agency could run on a profit, but the Department of Docs did. And now New York and Greenwich Village had the piers that could accommodate these new, much larger ships, most of which were passenger ships, but the freighters were, were as large. And then they built a second project very similar to that in Chelsea, and those are the Chelsea piers that are still there today. The social history of the waterfront is quite complicated. It's the men who worked the, the docks, day laborers, and for over 150 years, these were the Irish. And they were exploited. You had the day laborers who would crowd the piers at the shape up. There'd be 100 men looking for a job, and the pier boss would select 50 of them, or 20 of them. And the pier boss had to be bought off with kickbacks, and the men who weren't selected migrated across the street to the bars, waiting for the next ship to appear. And it was a dangerous way to live. These waterfront neighborhoods were terrible places. And then a second technological revolution was the container. 1957, Malcolm McLean, tired of the corruption and the stealing and the crime on the docks, decides to put his cargo into an aluminum box, 40 feet long, 8 feet wide, 10 feet tall, and the container revolution begins. And this is going to destroy the maritime waterfront on Manhattan Island and in Brooklyn because you had to load and unload the containers and there was no space on the waterfront. This dramatically reduced the need for labor. In the 18, in 1950s, the estimates are there were 50,000 longshoremen working the piers and then dock workers and truck drivers and loaders increase the number of men working the piers to perhaps 100,000. In 2016, there were 2,500 longshoremen. And the port moved to Newark Bay because in Newark, they found dramatic space where they could unload and load containers. Today, the container ships contain 20,000 containers and new container ships coming through the newly expanded Panama Canal, and those two 20,000 containers can be unloaded in a couple of days. It took thousands of man hours to load and unload ships. So that maritime world disappeared. Piers became abandoned. They couldn't be used for anything. Some of them burned down. Some of them collapsed into the Hudson or East River. And the elevated West Side Highway created a world of darkness, the abandoned piers and the elevated railroad. It was the death of the Manhattan waterfront. And it was the near death of New York City. In the mid-70s, crime skyrocketed. The people left for the suburbs. The East Village was filled with abandoned tenements. The city was going bankrupt, and it looked like New York was going to collapse. Well, we know it didn't. There's been a rebirth, a remarkable rebirth. And part of that is driven by the reimagining of the Manhattan waterfront as a place of leisure, 
a place for people to go, a place for people to live where they could look out at the sun setting over the Hudson River, for example, or the lower harbor. This glorious waterfront has emerged. It's part of gentrification. And this was accomplished with this interesting public-private partnership. The authorities, the Hudson River Park Trust builds the Hudson River Park. The Battery Park City Authority builds Battery Park City and these beautiful parks along the river. Probably the most famous is the High Line. The High Line is a couple of blocks in from the Hudson River, but it's part of the shoreline of Manhattan these days. And it's the most popular tourist attraction in New York City. And there was a rebirth then in the neighborhoods, Greenwich Village, for example, where the longshoremen lived. Looked at data for 32 Bethune Street, a block and a half in from the Hudson River. Historically, it was filled with men who worked the docks. Well, today, Zillow estimate it's worth $7.4 million. It's a private townhouse. But there's a challenge to this rebirth and that is climate change. And Hurricane Sandy is the perfect example of that challenge. It flooded the shoreline of lower Manhattan, and the flooding coincided with the made land. So if you take a map and you take the original map of Manhattan Island, and you put the FEMA floodplain on top of it, and look where the floodwaters were, they flooded up to the original shoreline. You may remember Con Edison Electrical Plant on 14th Street is on made land, and it, the waters filled the, the uh, Con Ed power plant. It exploded, and lower Manhattan was without power for almost a week. If we return to that area between Wall Street and Maiden Lane where there were 149 water lots, there's a set of high-rise office buildings there. 13, almost 14 million square foot of rentable office space. Estimates are that that's worth six or six and a half billion dollars. And they sit on made land. Well, what happens when the next Sandy comes? Some efforts have been made to strengthen those buildings. The mechanicals are now up on the second and third floors. But the waterfront of Manhattan Island, now this waterfront of recreation and places where the well-to-do live, is at risk. And so we have to think about that. And Mayor Bloomberg presented a plan to uh, make the war waterfront of Manhattan Island and Brooklyn and Staten Island more resilient. And uh, the estimate they put it on is a modest beginning would be $25 billion. And where would that money come from? I don't want to be super pessimistic. Certainly if you go down to the Hudson River Park on a spring or summer day and you're standing with thousands and thousands of people watching the sunset over the Hudson River and the, the Upper Bay, and you're out on one of the piers that have been reconstructed, or you're at Pier A, which has been redeveloped into a upscale place to have a drink or have dinner, or you're over now in the Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is a glorious place to go. But this is not without controversy because the question is, is it just the wealthy who can enjoy this reimagined waterfront? And controversies have arisen about, about who has access to the various parts of this new waterfront, which has led the rebirth of New York. So think about this remarkable story of 350 years
of evolution of the waterfront from once a place of maritime activity almost exclusively, that world disappeared and now it's been moved, the waterfront's been reimagined as a place where we can go and we can walk and we can contemplate the fact that Manhattan is in fact an island. Uh, it is an island and now we, we can imagine a, uh, a waterfront for hopefully all to enjoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.